This morning we are studying Hebrews 6 and we are on verse 17. Or did we do that last time? I may have forgot to... No, I don't remember that. I think we're supposed to start on 17. In the same way, God desiring even more to show the heirs of the promise, the unchangeableness of His purpose, interposed with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is possible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hope of the hope that was set before us. So we're going to talk about the unchangeableness of God's purpose. When we talk about God being unchangeable, what what do you think about um, what kind of a uh, understanding of theology comes to your mind about God being unchangeable? Okay, is there is there anything? This really the reason we're talking about this is a very important doctrine, and it's being challenged today by the likes of Greg Boyd and other open theists who suggest that God does change based on unforeseen things that come up in history. That God has plans, and then when history unfolds, because God doesn't foresee their future choices or free moral agents, then this causes God to change His plan in response to what man does or doesn't do. And uh, Pastor Boyd suggests that those of us who believe that God is unchangeable are um, guilty of following Greek uh, thinking that came from Plato and not from the Bible, and that we are, you know, um, really making this view of God that He's sort of totally uh, unaccessible, and so on. That's their claim. But the simple truth of the matter is the Bible just says God's unchangeable. I, the Lord, changed not. Is that what it says in Malachi? So the, so the Bible does say that. So we're not trying to uh, come up with some uh, platonic philosophy about uh, the, the technical word in theology is impassibility. We're not trying to do that. We're just trying to account for everything that it says in the Scriptures. I believe that God is unchangeable, but that doesn't mean He doesn't hear prayer, He doesn't interact with us, He doesn't feel. God is personal. God uh, is condescending to us in the sense of being willing to interact on the, in the scene of history with humans. Uh, and so, the big issue is, are we going to do all the work that it takes to understand the Scriptures and everything it says in the Scriptures, or are we going to come up with some other philosophy that makes it easier? by getting rid of part of God's attributes. So, the Bible asserts that God, uh, God's purpose is unchangeable, which simply means it doesn't change as history unfolds based on what man does. Do you, do you see the difference? It isn't like, well, humans are going to all of a sudden do some unforeseen to God, thing that God didn't anticipate, so now He has to change how He's going to deal with man. Yes. What about some of the, I'm sure that you've read about it, some of the places in the Old Testament where man implored God to change the mind. Yep. And, and I'd like to hear what you have found in your studies of that. Oh, yeah. And, and for, that's, for example, in Exodus, 
and this is just exactly why there's an issue that comes up. It says God has an unchangeable purpose. But in Exodus, we have God saying to Moses, um, these people are too rebellious, too sinful. I'm paraphrasing. Okay. I'm not going to, I'm going to wipe them out and I'm going to take you, Moses. I'm going to start over. And we'll raise up a whole different people. These ones really, I don't, I'm sick of them. They're too rebellious. And remember what Moses did? Moses went to God and says, if you do that, the nations are going to uh, mock you. The nations are going to say, uh, God brought these people out of Egypt, but he wasn't able to bring them in, and, and your name would be dishonored. And so please forgive the people and, and bring them into the land as you promised. And so Moses, that, that was pleasing to God, and God responded to Moses' intercession and spared the people, although they, he's, you know, they had to die in the wilderness and their descendants went in. And that's what you're talking about, that whole story? There's a number of them. Yeah, or even the, the thing where we talked about Isaac, remember? A week or two ago where the knife is raised and God stops it. Now, Pastor Boyd um, would say, well, there's proof that God changes his mind. Right there. That's, that's his proof that these stories in the Bible do show God changing his mind. So obviously these other verses don't, can't be really taken literally. Um, how would I answer that? I would say that because God swore to Abraham that he was going to bring those people out of... God said to Abraham, and this I wrote a whole article about this in response to Boyd's uh, demand that somebody answer these scriptures. So I wrote a whole article on all these scriptures. God promised Abraham, when he, and I preached on this, where he made an oath to Abraham, and he says, your descendants will be in captivity for 400 years, and when the wickedness of the Amorites is full, I'm going to bring them out, and I'm going to bring them back to this land that I promised you. So God told Abraham um, centuries before that he was going to bring these people out and bring them into the land. Well, then God always intended to do that, and he can't lie. So we're going to read about that right here in Hebrews. God cannot lie. And he told Abraham he was going to do it. So there was no question he was going to do it. So then the question is, why did he say this to Moses? And I'd say it was very much like the Syrophoenician woman in Matthew. In order to elicit this faith response that God knew was coming, in order to show the importance of intercession. That, that even Moses' intercession was part of God's eternal plan. That God was going to use Moses, and that Moses was going to intercede, and that God was going to answer. Because God is not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should repent. And so, uh, yeah, let God be true and every man a liar. And so, uh, God used Moses, but he always intended to. Uh, Tim. And, um, it's possible. And from Moses' viewpoint, as an author, it looked like he was praying and interceding, and God changed his mind. So that's what he wrote. Uh, right, on the scene of history, I heard of it. I heard of it. Small potatoes, as far as what he saw. Right. Exactly. I heard Norm Geisler once explain it this way uh, about biblical narrative. and He was talking about the book of Job, but it really is a good analysis. He says, you have behind the scenes. See, we as the readers, we get in on these things. All right? We know that God promised Abraham that people are going to make it into the promised land. But, and so that's sort of behind the scenes. That's the background information. It's like the prologue to Job. Behind the scenes, God and Satan had discussed Job and gave Satan um, the uh, 
privilege of attacking Job, or permission to attack Job. On the scene, Job doesn't know about that, does he? All Job knows about is, they killed my kiddies, Chaldeans killed my family. Right? And so Job is interacting with God as he sees it on the scene. He doesn't have this information about Satan and all the stuff that happened behind the scenes. But then there's beyond the scene, which is God's eternal purpose that it's worked out, which Job finds out later through the whole process. So, uh, behind the scene, God has an eternal purpose that is immutable and unchangeable and is going to be, go through uh, all the way through the millennium and all these things that God says He's going to do, He's going to do. On the scene of history, as we interact at any moment in history, we are free to pray, to decide, to intercede, to make choices, and to do the things that God gives us the, not only the opportunity, but the duty to do. Um, how does our freedom interact with God's eternal sovereign purpose? Well, there's, there's the uh, thing that we can only just get so far in our understanding, and pretty soon it starts to run out. And I choose to believe everything the Bible says and not give up certain parts of it because I can't fit it all together as well as I would like. So, on the scene of history, Moses is interceding. God always knew that Moses would intercede. God always knew that he was going to answer Moses' prayer because God knows all things. And God always knew he was going to bring the people in. But it nevertheless does not invalidate Moses' prayer. It's real. It's effectual prayer that God used. And Moses is honored and rewarded for having prayed it. Does that make sense? It's the best I can do it right today. Uh, Kathy. Yes, God is very consistent. So this is what we're learning in our lesson today in the Scripture. It says God wanted to show us the unchangeable. See, what, what, why is God doing this? He wants us to learn something. God desires to show who? The heirs of the promise. The unchangeableness of His purpose. So what did He do? He made an oath. He swore to Abraham. This is what I'm going to do. Now, how does that show us the unchangeableness of His purpose? Because we read about God making the oath to Abraham, and then we read the rest of the history as we're just talking about, and we see God do it. The descendants of Abraham did go into the land. And there was a, a, all the promises coming to pass, and God cannot lie. Yeah, Dean. That's what I, yeah, we talked about that. I think the Sunday you were here. But they, it's a good illustration of this purpose, yes. It's like when uh, God talked to uh, his Heavenly Father, raising Lazarus. He said, The only reason I speak out loud is for your benefit. I don't have to speak. I already know that I'm going to raise him from the dead. So when I speak forth, it's for your benefit. So whenever he spoke to Moses, he knew what he was going to do. He said, I know I'm going to raise him from the dead, Heavenly Father. But I speak so that the people would hear and understand. And, and they would believe. Yeah. So he speaks to Moses. He, he already knows. Pre, uh, it, it, he can't change. He's doing it for our benefit. And when you notice whenever he speaks like that king, and gave him 15 more years to live. It's always mercy. It's always a warning towards mercy. Abraham spoke. 
hey, if they'd only have, it's all, show me where it is in mercy or kindness or tenderness all the way through. Even <laughs> yeah. Adam and Amen. God is it's merciful. For our benefit. Amen. Okay, here we go. Back to the text. In the same way, God, desiring even more to show the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of His purpose, interposed with an oath. Let's, uh, let's look up some cross references. We'll start over there. Tim, Psalm 33:11. Mary, Proverbs 19:21. I did. Thank you. All right, let's go to verse 18. Did I do a verse 18 last week? Yes. <laughs> Mary, you're good. <laughs> I'm impressed. <laughs> okay, Mary, next week you teach the class. You got it. <laughs> All right. Yeah, 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 that's right. Dean, Dean was gone last week. He needed this. All right. Let's go to verse 18. I think I left this here because it was one sentence. We didn't do verse 18 though, did we? No. You didn't do any cross-references verse 18. All right. All right. Okay. Thank you. All right. Let's go to verse 18. Uh, by two unchangeable things, I mentioned then the promise of God and His oath. Those are the two unchangeable things. It's impossible for God to lie. Why does it say it's impossible for God to lie? What does that say? It's the in theology, we talk about it this way. Um, what's impossible for God is to do something that's contrary to His own nature. Okay, the critics and the atheists try to come up with these things. Can God bake a rock so big he can't lift it? Well, they're just using a absurdity um, to uh, to try to suggest that God is not all powerful. What's impossible for God is to act contrary to His holy and righteous nature. And so, God's nature is truth. Jesus said, "I am the way, the truth, and the life." And that everything about God is truthfulness. That therefore, because of His nature, it is impossible for God to lie. God cannot lie. And He will not lie. So, therefore, every word that God speaks is true. Absolute true. And so, what does this mean to us? Well, we have hope. That's the point. If God promised to keep us, He's going to keep us. If He promised that our sins are forgiven, they're forgiven. If He promised that He, Jesus said, uh, I, I go to prepare a place for you, that where I am, there you may be also, we can take great hope and encouragement in, in that because we know that He cannot lie because He's God. So it's impossible for God to lie. We who have taken refuge, we're going to use some nautical metaphors again here that we find several times in Hebrews. There's a nautical metaphor of taking refuge and then the next verse of the anchor. So you get into the safe harbor and you put down your anchor. And that's a a metaphor of salvation that people who come to God through Messiah and come to faith have taken refuge from their own sinful deeds taking refuge from you know, impending judgment, taking refuge from the miseries of the world, and have put their anchor down and are in safe harbor. So that those who take refuge would have strong encouragement to take, hope, take hold of the hope set before us, and this hope is an eschatological hope. We were talking, eschatology is the study of the end times. We were talking about that on the radio yesterday. 
Jan and this guy named Kai, Kai Gilbertson. We, we, had, we had a lot of fun on the radio. And this hope is not only for now, but it's, it's a future hope that everything will come to its fullness and that we will participate in these end-time blessings. Okay, all right, let's try again. I think this time we got verses we haven't done before. Tim, Psalm 110 and verse 4. Mary, Numbers 23 and 19. That's it. There's those two. <laughs> uh, we got more. Next verse. <laughs> Don't give up. Yeah, Psalm 110 is the most important psalm as far as the New Testament is concerned. It's the most quoted and alluded to Old Testament passage in the whole New Testament. That's from Psalm 110. Okay, so what does it say? Yeah, and that's a theme in Hebrews. The, pre, the high priestly ministry of Jesus was of the order of Melchizedek. And it's, but the key here is the O. You have sworn. In other words, you have sworn you won't change your mind. If God appointed Messiah as the high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek, then this is unchangeable, immutable. It will not be any other way. Therefore, we have great hope that we can come to Him and that God will... Um, have him there in the holiest place interceding for us. It, yes? Um, what he does is he says that you have to interpret those verses in light of the ones that say God changes mind. Alright, so here's, here's the difference between my beliefs and Greg Boyd's on this. I'd say the great the clear passages in Ephesians, in Malachi, in the Psalms, where it states God doesn't lie, God cannot change his mind, God's purpose doesn't change. Those are general, universal statements by their nature, because you can read that's the context. He goes to the narrative where it says, where God says, I re, I, uh, I'm sorry I ever made these people. You know, that, like that. Right? And he assumes that the narrative, which isn't, uh, well, in, in theology we use the term didactic, it's not a clear universal statement. It's a narrative of God interacting with us. Alright? He takes that to be the universal thing, and the clear statements have to be interpreted in the light of that. And so when I wrote the article about, uh, the foreknowledge of God in order to deal with that, I pointed out, that he is not only failing to take into account the clear statements, that his use of the narrative is flawed because these statements don't mean what he says they mean. For example, when God says, I'm sorry that I ever created this people, does that mean that literally if he had it to do over again, he wouldn't? Or is it a statement of emotion? That, you know, it's like you take your kid to the shopping mall and they go nuts and you go, I'm sorry I ever took you to this place. All right? <laughs> All right, you're, you're making my life miserable, Bill. No, I, I don't think it's any of those. I'm getting to know him better, besides the debate with him, where I got a lot of time to interact with him personally, and I did know him a little bit in the 80s, and I just 
read, I just wrote an article that's going out on Monday that critiques, amongst other things, his latest books, Seeing is Believing. Um, I really believe that what, this is just my guess, but I think he'd even maybe would say this. I think his whole thing is driven by his own emotional needs. Amen. He almost says that in his book. And he told me, he's basically made statements that make me think that. He says, he says if, it's, if it's the way you say, say, I can't handle that. I can't deal emotionally with this idea that God could have done things differently and he didn't. I can't deal with God allowing evil things to go on in this world. It's too emotionally damaging to me. And, and, and as I read his latest book, he kind of just bears his soul. And I, I have compassion for him. Okay? I, 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 it saddens me that he feels like he has to alter theology because of his emotional needs, but it doesn't mean I don't have compassion about his emotional needs. I don't, I don't, I'm not trying to hurt him, but what, what I wish he could see is the truth offers more solace for his soul than this. I think what you have with, with Dr. Boyd is an extremely brilliant man, absolutely brilliant, like Charles Finney was. Finney was similar, although he had different motivations. Finney was brilliant enough to create his own theology to suit his purposes. He didn't need any help from anybody else. So Charles Finney went out and created a theology, and we're stuck with it to this day. Greg Boyd has the resources, the brain power, and the motivation to create a theology that suits his own needs. Exactly, and he could, but he he he, he, he basically said, "I can't deal with that." In fact, in a debate between the public part, we were walking off the stage. And he says, to, he asked me this, he says, or I think it was a statement, he said, I don't understand how you can do this. And what he meant was this, how can you affirm these things and still have compassion, still preach the gospel, still believe in prayer, still believe in personal responsibility, because he thinks it can't be. That you have to have this open thing or you can't find a, 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 a solution. And, uh, and he, he said also between the debate times, he says, I understand. No, I think he even said this on the radio. He said, I understand that your position is exegetically sound. I just can't deal with it. I don't like it. You answered my question because I asked him, what would you do then to change God's mind if you want change? Think about it. He's emotional. He's unhappy with what God has done. In other words, sir, I don't like a lot of things either, but I can't change it. Maybe some of my friends are in hell. That's awful thought, emotional for me, but I can't change what God said in motion. It is, you have to come to a sense of, he would want God to change all these emotional things you said that's hurting him. Yeah, yeah and so... He'd like to change because God has yeah. done something wrong. Why would we want God to change? Because we're saying to God, that to put people in hell or whatever you're doing, is, or, or punishing them or, or doing this isn't right. God is, you, you would think that, yeah. that's what the atheists tell me, the humanists. We could do a better God than Job. And, and he's saying the same thing in an indirect way. Job than God. You mean. <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> uh, uh, that's, that, that's, sort of, that, that's like the dyslexic insomnia. Dan, did you hear about the dyslexic insomniac that stayed up all night trying to figure out if there was a dog? <laughs> Okay, let's go on here. Uh, what, what, so what I'm saying in answer to the question there is that, that Steve asked is that 
what are we what do we need to do is take these clear statements about God's nature and interpret the narrative in light of those. Don't take the narrative which is not even commenting directly about God's nature. It is just telling how God interacts with a person and assuming that reveals uh you know, negates all these other verses. Yes. Exactly. And particularly in the narrative, and when I wrote that article, I went through his book and just took example after example that he used and showed that the language is, is God using human language to express his feelings about something in no different way than we would, and we wouldn't mean it literally if we use that language. Uh, and we use that kind of thing all the time. And I try to give an illustration of how we use language the same way. And, and never mean it to mean to be literal. So God, uh, for example, one of his examples in the in that uh, book that I was interacting with was in Jeremiah. In one of these statements in Jeremiah, God says, "I would, I thought that by now you would have repented." Okay. And and, and Greg says, "Well, obviously God thought that they would have repented. He was wrong." And I, and I said, "Well, no, wait a second. For one thing, if you read the whole Jeremiah." Any reader of Jeremiah wouldn't have thought they're going to repent. You know, if you read the history of Israel, you'd know they're not going to repent. And what he was actually doing was God was expressing his disgust over the fact that they hadn't. And I said, I'll give, and I gave an illustration of my article out of my own life. Uh, my wife used to go spend a week with her parents in Florida every winter because she has arthritis and she wanted to get a little break from the cold, which, you know, makes her joints hurt. And so she'd be gone a week or two. And this happened several years in a row. And uh, true to nature, I wasn't very good at taking care of the house while she was gone. All right. And and one and one uh, one of those trips, she came back and uh, somehow or another the the rugs didn't get vacuumed and the bed didn't get make, made and I think maybe the dishes got in the dishwasher. I can't remember. And she came back and says, "Well, I would have thought that by now you would have cleaned the house." Now, did she mean that literally? Well, no, she, I did exactly what she expected because I'd be consistent. But she was trying to get me to see that I ought to have cleaned the house. And I use that illustration in my article that when God says, well, I would have thought by now you people would have repented, it doesn't mean God was wrong about his prediction about what they're going to do. But I did change after that and started cleaning the house before she came home. <laughs> I realized it was bugging her, so then I changed it. Yes. Um, the foreknowledge of God, and it was in CIC archives on the website. Uh, you know, I, I, I probably should have had Greg's uh, name in the title so people could find it when they search the Internet. <laughs> Anyhow, it's called The Foreknowledge of God, and, and then you can read that and it'll show how this language works. What are we saying, though? Let's back to our passage here. Unchangeable, it's impossible for God to lie. He has a purpose. He stated his purpose. And nothing's going to change it. Now, here's another thing. Why, uh, Bill was asking about why some of these theologies are out there. I think that ultimately, these verses really are encouraging to Christians. But it isn't very compelling to non-Christians. In other words, non-Christians are looking for different answers. Okay, why does God allow evil? Well, 
the Christian can accept God's answer because he allows it for a purpose of greater good. He's, he's, he's going to ultimately overcome evil. He's, he's, uh, all things work together for the good of who? Yeah. That doesn't help the atheist with his issues. Okay. And so the people like Boyd want answers that are acceptable to everybody, not just Christians. And, but the Bible isn't acceptable to everybody. All right. And I thought about that during the debate. I thought, you know, this, what is this saying here? What is, what is the author of Hebrews doing here? He's giving hope to Christians. All right. The same thing, if you're not a Christian, isn't giving you much comfort. All right. What is he saying? He's showing the heirs of the promise. Verse 17. Who? The heirs of the promise. Believers. The unchangeableness of his purpose. So that by two unchangeable things, it was impossible for God to lie that who? We who have taken refuge. It doesn't say everybody. It just says we who have taken refuge. If you haven't taken refuge, that Jesus is the high priest after the order of Melchizedek isn't doing you much good, is it? And so it's giving hope and encouragement to Christians. The purposes of God for Christians are a good thing. That's what Ephesians says, that, that God cannot lie, that God does not change, means that He's forgiven my sins and nobody can take it away. No man can undo what God's done. So, uh, what if you're not a Christian? Does that give you hope? Not unless you decide to repent. Yes. Oh, the Lutheran renewal thing. Yeah. Yeah, uh, when I wrote that article about Rick Joyner, Keith Gentoff sent it over to Greg Boyd. Greg read it before I even published it and sent back uh, an email saying, well, I don't, I don't like this. I think Bob's too hard on Rick Joyner. Wow. I mean, Rick Joyner is going to heaven and talking to dead people. Rick Joyner talks to Paul, and Paul tells Rick that his Paul's writings in the Bible weren't that great. I know. And so... Where's discernment? It's not, it went out the window. All right, back to the anchor of the soul here. Oh, no, impossible for God to lie. We've taken refuge. We have a hope set before us. Psalm 110, verse 4. How about Numbers 23? No, that, I, yeah, we did. That was the order of Melchizedek. I've sworn, and I will not change my mind, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. See, I was listening, Tim. <laughs> My wife complains about that all the time. I repeat things back, and I just didn't—I didn't look like I was listening. All right, uh, but not Numbers twenty-three nineteen. That's a really awesome one. Twenty Numbers twenty-three nineteen. I love that one, especially because it's coming out of the mouth of Balaam, and he was basically saying it in frustration, but he knew it to be true. Balaam wanted to curse Israel because that's how he's going to get his big paycheck. Right? Balak hired him to curse Israel 
And he was going to make a lot of money. All he had to do was curse Israel. And this guy's a soothsayer, a diviner, an augur, uh, a spiritist. And he's going to curse Israel. And he gets up there and he opens his mouth and the Holy Spirit comes on him. This pagan. And he speaks a blessing to Israel. And he even prophesies about Messiah. And Balak says, I hired you to curse him and now you bless them these three times. And then Balaam says, God is not a man that he should lie. <laughs> He's blessed. I can't reverse it. So Balaam, interesting, Balaam the pagan uh, prophet knows better about God than a lot of Christian theologians. He has a better understanding of God's nature than some Christian theologians. Um, but anyhow, God doesn't lie. doesn't change his mind. And he blessed it. He, and there's no man that can reverse it. Yes. That's a good analogy, uh, Judith, that as, as if you trust your father that he knows things you don't and he has your best interest in mind, then if he says don't go play in traffic, that's probably a good idea to listen to him. Right. Um, and our Heavenly Father deserves to be trusted whether or not he's explained everything to, to our satisfaction. So I need to trust that God has my best interest in mind and I follow what He says. Amen. Very simple truth, but well illustrated, yes. Uh, the one thing that comes to my mind too, that's the same way that obedience works too. It doesn't matter that you explain. You just do it or else. Mm-hmm. Well, we do it knowing that it, since it's God who has spoken and He has our best interest in mind, that simple faith and obedience is going to result in something good, even if it doesn't happen till eternity. Even if the good that doesn't become clear until after this life, we still believe that God has good intentions towards us. Well, let's talk about this anchor now. Now, uh, verse 19. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, one which enters within the veil. This has got to be one of the most awesome verses in, in the book of Hebrews. It's just absolutely loaded with significance. And the terminology, those people who know Greek well enough to be able to compare very, very eloquent, high-quality Greek with Greek that's a little more rough around the edges, have, have noticed that the book of Hebrews has some of the highest... Uh, most beautiful use of the Greek language found anywhere in the New Testament, which suggests that whoever wrote Hebrews is very fluent in Greek. The metaphors are drawn from the, and it's interesting given to Hebrews, but um, this, the metaphors are, are fantastic. The, the language, the use of 
just the sounds in the Greek is beautiful. It just starts with verses 1 and 2 of chapter 1 and goes on. So we have an anchor. What, what's an anchor about? Well, uh, in the nautical world, I found some quotes uh, about that. The anchor here is, um, the, uh, from this is from a scholar named William Lane, the literary use of the anchor as a nautical metaphor was widespread in the ancient world. The source of the metaphor was a common experience of maritime peoples of the Mediterranean um, basin that, quote, the firm grip of the anchor's teeth holds the ships fast. That's from some Greek literature. In Greek literature, the metaphor was used constantly to evoke the notion of stability provided by adherence to virtue and especially to hope. Then he says the nearly synonymous terms, gives the Greek words, firm and secure, were used to describe anything that had sufficient stability and firmness as to not be moved. In Hebrews, this word secure is a favorite term um, in that it is, uh, gives assurance. The pair of terms is appropriate to the metaphor, and here qualifies the antecedent hope. As a ship is held fast when at anchor, the life of the Christian is secured by hope that binds the life to Christ who has entered the heavenly sanctuary. And so our hope in Christ goes right inside the veil. Amen. And it's a firm anchor that, that's not going to be coming loose. It's not going to get uh, out of the bottom of the ocean. It's going to hang on because it goes inside the veil where God is holding the other end. <laughs> yeah. It'll hold it'll hold you in the rough waters. Amen. Yes. So you think this verse is giving us that hope? Yes. All right, good. That's an amen then. All right. <laughs> well, well, that's. Well, Dan, that's why you're coming here because you're going to hear you're going to hear something different. Okay. Well, all we need is the the Bible here, and this this secure anchor. Let's have some questions here. Why does it say that this goes within the veil? What's the significance of within the veil? Because we couldn't go in there. Right. What happened in the Old Testament that the veil was about? Does anybody know? Uh, Bill. Mm-hmm. 
Exactly. Right. And so the idea is that that is as close to God as a person can be and live. And yeah, and Jesus. I'm gonna we're gonna read these cross references about all this stuff that happened. The veil was torn in two. When I when I was on the radio with Brian Flynn, by the way, I met with Brian Flynn, and we are good to go for November 6th. Jan's going to speak, Brian's going to speak, and I'm going to speak. It's going to be Faith at Risk 2. We've got the whole thing laid out, and I, it is, I'm excited about what Jan and Brian are going to preach. You know, you can decide whether I'm any good, but uh, I'm, I think it's going to be good. Anyhow, we were on the radio talking about this issue of mysticism, and when you talk to the people that are promoting mysticism, they're, they're universally saying that what they're trying to do is get closer to God, right? And, and one of the thoughts that came to my mind, because we've been studying Hebrews, is this. No person can be any closer to God than going within the veil. Amen. Because the closest anybody got to God was to go within the veil on the Day of Atonement and hope you didn't die, hope you did everything right because of God's immediate presence and glory. So if the Scripture says that our hope enters within the veil, that we have this high priest who's forever after the order of Melchizedek who's there for us, and that we're in him, then the Bible would suggest that it's impossible to get any closer to God than one gets through Messiah. And, and that if we have a high priest within the veil, how much closer to God are these people going to do by, get by going into an altered state of consciousness? Well, and... Uh, they're, they're doing something that's unnecessary. If they knew the real hope that we have here, they wouldn't need to go into this Amen. alpha level and uh, go into a trance. Jan sent me an email. There's this thing called the seer out there now, and they're teaching Christians how to go into a trance. And they use that terminology. Why? Every one of them says, uh, the article, we're publishing, by the way, Monday. I've got a, a huge article that blows the lid off of this mysticism. Uh, probably going to make a lot of enemies, but I don't care because somebody needs to say something about this. Every one of these authors is saying this. The kingdom of God is within, which is a misuse of that passage. Um, therefore, if you want to meet God, you've got to do a journey inward. And in order to do this journey inward, inward, you have to do certain techniques. And so I just went through all these. I read a pile of books just high to find out what all this was about. Basically, they're teaching you how to achieve alpha or theta level consciousness. And in that state, you're not in your normal awake consciousness, and you begin to have any spiritual experiences. And uh, if you are just normal awake consciousness, you don't have these experiences unless God sovereignly does it, which he could do like he did with Peter. Peter is going to go have lunch. God gave him a vision. But Peter didn't go concentrate on your breathing. Breathe in, Holy Spirit. Breathe out. And that's what they say to do. And it puts you into this alpha level, and then you start having these experiences. Well, I'm getting ahead of myself. The article's coming out Monday called Contemporary Christian Divination. Wow. And uh, if we just would be here, if we would just say, my anchor is within the veil, I can't get any closer to God than that in this life, until Christ comes and brings me to be with him, then I'll be closer to God. I wouldn't do all this stuff. So why? What are the, what, what's lacking in these Christians that they feel like they have to go into an altered state? Yeah. Yeah. 
because people are searching in the devil and having to hear this, putting, putting forth everything. That yeah. Well, um, when the article goes out, I'll be interested in what you think about it. I, it's more technical than most. Lois says it's way too long. And I said, well, Lois, I did this on purpose. I wanted it to be long because this has gone out in the arena of public debate, and these are big-name heavy hitters. And if I'm going to go out in that arena, I better have documentation. I, I withdraw that. All right. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I, if I ask them to, all I got to do is just tell them once it's out. Um, Sandy usually will put anything on that I send him. Um, the hope within the veil. Let's get the cross references here before we get too far away. All right. Finally, we get to Pete. He's been waiting for one. Leviticus 16:2. All right. And then uh, Bill, you got a Bible there in that thing? Leviticus 10:1 and 2 for Bill. Leviticus 10, 1 and 2. Um, and then uh, Bert, Isaiah 28, 16. Barb, Jeremiah 17, 7 and 8. A couple of my favorite verses. Um, Diane, Matthew 27, 51. I think that's the one you mentioned, Diane. And then um, Noel, Romans 5, 5 through 10. And Pat, Colossians 3 and verse 1. Okay, the first one, Leviticus 16.2. Yeah, if you go in there, you're going to die. Then right after that, it gives instructions about the Day of Atonement when he can go in that one time. So in other words, Aaron has to know, you go in there, you die. You get it? All right, I get it. Yes. What it means is, I think it had to do with more the other way around, that we have access now that wasn't there before. It signifies access that he's made to the holy place that before was restricted. And others have asked questions about that. So, well, why didn't everybody suddenly die that was in the temple there? Well, uh, probably because of this word Ichabod. The, the, the Chaldeans went in when they invaded the temple and went right in. Why didn't they die? Well, because God had left because of their apostasy. Right? No, I meant that the, the pagans were able to raid the temple without dying. But at that point, it was already this Ichabod. You know what Ichabod means? The glory is left. The glory so they got in there, but God did just because of apostasy had left. Let's get our cross references in before we run out of time. Leviticus 10, 1 and 2. I agree.
Ark of the Covenant with six mock male Jewish dancers carried this Ark down on a platform. They danced around it with metaphysical music with three themes on the lost uh, the, the lost tribes. And then they brought out, uh, they, they took away the Ark of the Covenant and out comes Mr. Manifest Sons of God himself, Francis Crane. Wow. And then alongside him, standing right there in a, in a Jewish Aaronic garb was uh, was Ed uh, uh, of Seed of Abraham. So you had you had all the classic uh, metaphysical elements of, of the Aaronic priesthood, the uh, Ark of the Covenant, and then the, the heretical manifest sons of God, which is and this is after five years of studying this stuff. This is uh, uh, the Kabbalah. Okay, you know what, well, uh, Jan is going to speak on that uh, at our conference on November 6th. Jan has a, I love her ability to come up with titles. It's called Mysticism, an Equal Opportunity Deceiver. And, and you're right, that is strange fire. That's not the gospel, what you witnessed there. It's strange fire. Well, they thought they could do it however they wanted. Right? Uh, these two, uh, two sons of Aaron, they thought, well, you know, why, why is God so strict? We'll just do how we want to do it. Boom. They died. I guess they were wrong. Isaiah 28, 16. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a costly cornerstone for the foundation, firmly placed. He who believes in it will not be disturbed. Amen. Amen. <laughs> The costly cornerstone is who? Yeah. And so we that believe in Him won't be disturbed because we are firmly anchored and with the cornerstone. Jeremiah 17, 7 and 8. Amen. There's more. <laughs> so there's another metaphor. The tree planted by the river. Now, when I was a kid in Iowa, that usually was cottonwoods that grew by the creek. And those cottonwoods by the creek were big. They were huge cottonwoods. Huge. And they were very green, you know, because they, they were drawn from that source of water. Yeah. Um, Matthew twenty-seven fifty-one. Why do you think it was torn from the top to the bottom? Why do why do why do we know that? So we know that God did it. Exactly. It signified that God did it from the top to the bottom. I heard that it's pretty thick. Yeah. God does it, and it signified now there's access to God through Messiah. Oh, yeah. Really? 
Okay, we got a few verses here that are for Romans 5, 5 through 10. Romans 5, 5 through 10. Wow. Amen. Yes. Amen. Pete. Yeah. Amen. It's poured in by the Holy Spirit. Amen. Uh, well, then there, there, the passage about hope in there is that for the, the gospel is in that passage. I did a radio show on that, and we, we I think we call it um, salvation in three tenses. So we've been saved from his wrath. We are being saved. In, in, in the Greek, in that section, it uses three different tenses with the word salvation, past, present, and future. We will be saved when we receive our resurrection body. Eschatological salvation It's all right in there. Fantastic section. Saved from wrath is part of the gospel. You hardly ever hear that anymore, do you? Uh, okay, one more here, Colossians one uh, or Colossians three one. Excuse me. Amen. Set your heart on things above. I didn't. I ran out. I, I filled up my whole eight-page article on that contemporary Christian divination. So I'm going to do a follow-up article on what the truth is, means of grace, and in the follow-up article, we're going to talk about that passage right there. These people say the kingdom is within, and so you've got to go on a journey inward to find God. Well, it's the exact opposite of the terminology of the Bible. The Bible, Although the Bible does say Christ in you, the hope of glory, that's an assurance that we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ. But where we're supposed to set our hearts and mind, the Bible never says put your heart, set your heart within yourself or look inward. Because Paul says just the opposite. He says, I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. You go to a journey inward, I'll tell you what you're going to find. No good thing. Um, and that says what it says clearly. It sets your mind on things above. Um, there's your, and so Christ has entered within the veil. And he's in the heavenly sanctuary making intercession. We're, we're supposed to keep this uh, mysticism is a poison pill for Christianity. Uh, literally, and we're, that's why we're willing to invest so much is, is to have a conference and to write articles and stuff because I, I think that this alarm needs to be sounded that this mysticism is going to destroy people. Yeah, right. Try something else, yeah. 
Yeah, which has already been given. Yes, Bill. Yep. Okay. Uh, we will. We have a time of fellowship, and then Brian has got a uh, sermon for us from Matthew in uh, upstairs, and it's also Communion Sunday. God bless you.